right, 1 Thessalonians. Before we get in there, let me give some background, some history. So 1 and 2 Thessalonians were originally letters. These aren't books. They were letters written by Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to a, a new church plant in the city of Thessalonica. But I've got some uh, pictures here of Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica was the, uh, the principal city in the entire region of Macedonia. It was the capital. It was the largest city. It was sitting on the best natural port in the entire Aegean Sea. So it had a lot of sea commerce. It was also almost smack in the middle of this uh, Via Ignatia, the Roman road that connected the um, Asia Minor with uh, Dericium, the port that led right over to, um, to Rome. And so they had tremendous trade from land and sea. It was a metropolitan city filled with internationals, people coming and going. It was a, it was a wealthy city, a city with a reputation. And Paul and Sil uh, Silvanus, in other words, uh, Silas, Paul and Silas evangelized Thessalonica, and that is, the story of that is recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. They show up and they do what they always do. They went first to the Jews. They went to the synagogue. And they, they sought to convince the Jews that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. They opened the scriptures and they showed that the Messiah had to die and rise again from the dead. And so Acts 17 tells us for three Sabbaths, they reasoned with the Jews in Thessalonica. But the result was most of the Jews refused to obey the gospel. They did not believe. But there were, however, on the periphery, a number of God-fearing Gentiles who also heard Paul and Silvanus. And they did believe and they became followers of Christ. They became Christians, and through them, other Gentiles turned from idolatry and became Christians. And we don't know how long Paul and Silvanus remained in Thessalonica, but long enough to begin to plant a church. But they didn't stay as long as they wanted to. They didn't think their work was done. They got run out of town. They had to leave before they thought their work was done. And Acts 17 tells us um, how that happened. But to make sense of it a little bit more, let me back up a little bit, a little farther. And let's talk about the planting of Thessalonica as a city. It was begun in 316 BC by Cassander, the king of the Macedonians. And this was at a time in which Macedonia was the dominant empire in the world. Alexander the Great had died only eight years earlier. Alexander the Great had established arguably the greatest empire ever in human history. These were a powerful, noble, wealthy uh, people. In fact, the Macedonian Empire was the great power until 168 BC when the Romans finally conquered them. But by the time Paul came around, Thessalonica had carved out a pretty uh, comfy existence. They had sort of negotiated a a peace with the Romans. They were considered, Thessalonica was considered a free city, which meant that they paid fewer taxes to the Romans than many other cities. They were allowed a certain amount of self-rule. And so the elites in Thessalonica, Macedonians in background, they were allowed to 
largely rule themselves. Uh, the Roman law was not, didn't have to be followed. They could have their own judicial system. But all of this freedom, which resulted in uh, you know, tremendous wealth for Thessalonica, all of this freedom depended upon uh, the, the pleasure of the Romans. And so the Thessalonica as a city sought to um, show its overlords that it was a loyal city and that it honored the uh, Caesar. And so this, the city actually funded the cult of the emperor and the city paid for sacrifices to God or to Caesar, Caesar a supposed God. And, and the elites in Thessalonica were, were very keen to tamp down any revolt. Now, early, when, early on, uh, after Rome conquered Macedonia, there were some Macedonians who said, I'm the new king, and, and uh, there had been revolts against Rome, and those had always been crushed. And so the, the elites in the ruling class in Thessalonica was very keen to not let any revolt be fostered, and so part of their job was to keep down any uh, rebellion against Rome. So this is why when the Jews in Thessalonica became jealous of the converts that Paul and Silvanus were having, they didn't like the fact that there were all these Gentiles in Thessalonica believing that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. They became jealous, Acts 17 tells us, and so they spread a rumor and the rumor they spread was, was calculated to incite a riot. And the rumor was, these Christians are claiming there's another king, and his name is Jesus. So if you are a Thessalonian of, in, of, of uh, power, and you're thinking to yourself, my good cushy life depends on the favor of the Romans. If the Romans hear that we are somehow fostering uh, that an idea that there is another king other than Caesar, they're going to come down hard on us, so we've got to crush this. And that's why Acts 17 says that rumor caused a riot in the city, and they ran Paul and Silas out of town. And so Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, uh, they went first to Berea, then they ended up all the way down in Corinth. But as you can imagine, they were worried about their new church that they'd planted they didn't think it was time for them to leave. They didn't think the church was ready to stand on its own. And they were afraid that the evil one was going to use this persecution which broke out upon the Christians to snuff out the faith of individuals and ultimately crush the church. That was a, a, a great concern on their heart. And to find out what was happening, they sent Timothy up to Thessalonica. Timothy comes back, and his report is a great report. He said, actually, their faith is strong. God is keeping their faith alive. He has begun a good work. He will be faithful to complete it. And their, their love for you, they're not mad at you. They don't blame you for this persecution. They're, they love you, Paul and Silvanus. They desire the best from you. They hope you can come back someday. But in the meantime, they're loving each other. They're spreading the gospel throughout Macedonia and Achaia and in, anywhere the ships take them. It's a great report. Paul and Silas are thrilled. And so they pen the letter of 1 Thessalonians to their church that they planted. 
And largely they're saying, we are so thankful to God for your faith, your steadfastness, your, your, your labor of love, your work of faith, your steadfastness of hope. We're so thankful for you. Well done. And let me just remind you guys, Jesus is going to return and he's going to set all things right. He's going to vanquish his enemies. He's going to reward his friends. He's going to put all things right. And so persevere. Be faithful. Continue to do what you're doing. It's, a, it's one of the letters of Paul that is most filled with praise uh, to a church. It's an exemplary church. So with all that as background, let's now open the letter and begin to read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We've titled this series, uh, The Coming of Christ, because um, every chapter in this book ends with uh, an eye toward the second coming of Jesus. If there is a dominant theme in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, it is the fact that that the Lord Jesus Christ will return someday to vanquish his enemies, reward his friends, and put all things right. And during this Advent season, uh, while we celebrate the first coming of our Lord, it seems also very appropriate to have our eye on uh, the second coming of our Lord as well. We look forward to that day. What I want to focus on today, however, is uh, the fact that Paul says the Thessalonians are exemplary. Look again at verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, that's modern Greece. You became an example. Boy, wouldn't you love to hear God say, Clearwater Church, you are an example. You're an example to the believers in Anchorage and Wasilla and the entire state of Alaska. That's awesome. And so nothing in God's word is uh, recorded for, you know, it's, it's always recorded for our encouragement and for our lesson. So we want to look at what made these Thessalonian Christians an example so we can follow their example and become an example ourselves. 
I see four, four things Paul points out that made the Thessalonians an exemplary church. Number one, they honored God's word. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Now the Jews, they, they, what kind of reception did Paul and Silvanus get? The stiff arm. We don't believe. The Thessalonian Christians, however, had recognized the gospel for what it really was, the word of God, and they honored it with their faith. Paul is more specific in chapter 2, verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, which can be disputed and can be judged, but as what it really is, the word of God. You, they were an exemplary church because they, they took God's word and they believed. You know, the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of God. Do we honor it, right, as a church? They did. Second thing that made the Thessalonians an exemplary church was they had turned from idols. How you turn to God from idols. So this church was made up predominantly of Gentiles who had come from an idol-worshiping background. In other words, that's what their families did. That's when they went to work, their, their guild that they were a part of probably uh, sometimes performed cultic ceremonies. Because you've got to understand, in, in ancient Thessalonica, a religion was absolutely part of public life. There was no Oh, that's a private thing. We don't do that in public. It was absolutely part of public life. If you wanted to be a, a, um, a full participating citizen in Thessalonica, you were going to be involved in uh, sacrifices to Caesar and uh, Cerberus, the primary god of the Thessal Thessalonians. And you were going to be involved in that worship and that cultic practice. And to not do that meant that you were going to be on the outside. And so what Paul is saying is, guys, you have taken, you have turned your back on, on your society, on what you grew up with. You've taken a big hit. Many of them had been, you know, excluded from their families. They weren't going, maybe they lost their jobs. They, they, they weren't going to be able to climb the corporate ladder. There were certainly uh, parts of society they would never be able, echelons they would never be able to, uh, role in, participate in, because they had turned their back on idolatry. They had been converted. Their lives were changed. You turn to God from idols. So they were exemplary because they honored the word of God. They turned from idols. Number three, they served the living God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their lives were characterized by service to Christ. That's the way they understood themselves. I am a servant of the living and true God. My life is at his disposal. How does he want me to live my life while I remain on earth? I want to spend it for him. What did they do exactly? 
Well, in verse 3, he says, he remembers their work of faith and labor of love. Somewhat generic terms, but it's, it's work that's um, inspired by their faith in God. It's labor that's inspired by their love for each other and for the world around them. We do know that they were involved in evangelism. They had evangelized, uh, they were evangelizing Macedonia, Achaia. They were going anywhere and everywhere they could go to spread the word of God. We know that they were loving on each other. They were caring for each other. Uh, In chapter 4, verse 10, or verse 9, he says, "Uh, You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So they're loving on each other, and they're loving the world around them. In chapter 3, verse 12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do. So, um, Jesus tells us, if you give somebody even just a cup of water in my name, you're doing it to me. And I think uh, there's a lot of, um, the way we can serve God uh, can look tremendously varied. And the Holy Spirit inspires us and prompts us. But we know in our heart, are we doing this in order to honor the Lord and to serve the Lord? And the, the fourth thing that made the Thessalonian Christians an exemplary church is that they were waiting for Jesus' return. Verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of come to come. Now, we've just seen that they're serving God. So, waiting is not being idle. Waiting is not being lazy. Waiting has to do with what you are anticipating. Where is your heart? And so, why Paul said, the reason Paul said that the Thessalonian Christians were waiting for Christ is because uh, their hearts were not set on the things in front of them and the world in front of them. Their hearts were set on Christ. And they knew that when Jesus returned, that's when life was going to be best for them. And they longed for that, and they anticipated that. That's what we're told, in fact, in Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, For you have died in your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You hear what he's saying? Christians, our true life, our best life is hidden with Christ in, in God right now. But when Christ returns, our true life, our best life, arrives. And when we believe that, Uh, then what are we doing? We are waiting for Christ. We're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're busy doing the work of the master. We're not, we don't look idle, but our hearts are longing. And so the Thessalonian Christians were, they were an exemplary church because they honored the word of God. They turned from idols. They served the living and true God. And they were waiting for the return of his son, Jesus. So we are intended to uh, 
examine ourselves in light of this example. How do we match up individually and as a church? Do we honor God's word? One way to honor God's word is to believe it. Do we believe that God has spoken and that he has preserved his word so that we could read it today and understand it and apply it to our lives so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work? Do we believe it? I'll tell you what, uh, when we started this church, when we began weekly services, the very first uh, series I preached was 10 weeks on why we believe the Bible. And it was, I took a risk. It was a bit academic at times. I tried to answer uh, the challenges posed by our society in detail regarding uh, the Bible and its veracity and its believability. And I did that because I knew uh, it all starts with our confidence in God's Word. By the way, that's online. If you want, you can go back and listen to those things. Or come over and I'll preach them again. No, that's not true. Just go online. <laughs> so do we believe it? Do we preach it? That's, we preach the Bible here at Clearwater Church. This is our source of truth. God has revealed himself. We're not coming up with stuff. We recognize the difference between the words of man and the words of God. And it's the word of God that we honor. And, and I say to you what Paul said to the Bereans. Don't just take my word for it. You, you compare it to the scripture. And if it's, if it's from the scripture, then it's to be believed and obeyed. And otherwise, you just toss it out as one of Mike's interesting thoughts. Do we believe it? Do we proclaim it? Do we put ourselves before it? Do you read the scriptures? Uh, you're here listening to it preached. Awesome. Take Take part in the daily reading plan. Uh, put yourself before the word of God in order to be influenced by it. We memorize it here, right? We memorize it. We commit the word of God to, to memory, to our hearts. And um, then ultimately, do we obey it? Do we obey it? So are we honoring God's word? Number two, are we turning from idols? Idols are God substitutes. We probably don't. Uh, even know where a, uh, an idol is in Anchorage. But let me tell you how to uh, identify a, a possible idol in your life. When I desire becomes I demand. We have desires. Desires are a good thing. And what are we supposed to do with our desires? We take them to our Heavenly Father and we say, God, I want this. It's important to me. Please. And that's perfectly fine. The God, God actually says, bring to me your desires, your anxieties. Cast all your burdens upon me. I care for you. When it becomes an idol is when we say, not only do I desire it, I demand it. And if you're not going to give it to me, I'm going somewhere else. And we can be Christians who attend church and try to maintain a relationship with God. And yet we know that there's a part of our life where we are looking to someone other than God for that, because I demand that. And I'm not willing to let that part of my life be under the uh, sovereign control of God. It's just too important to me. I must have it. When I desire becomes I demand, there's an idol in your life. Are we willing to turn from that? 
does your life look different today than it did five years ago? Does it look different from your non-Christian friends? Have you turned? Have you made a true change in your life? Number three, are you serving the living and true God? Does, uh, how do you see yourself? I, I'm a servant of God. My primary aim in life and ambition in life is to, is to serve him and promote his kingdom and to get out the gospel and to do good in the world. Only you know that. Does that, how much of your time and energy and ambition is devoted to that? Or are you serving yourself or something else? And then finally, are, are we waiting are we waiting for Christ? And that's all about where are, where are your affections? Uh, do you long for Christ to return? Do, do you truly say in your heart, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I believe that when you return, life will be better. I long for that. Come, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or are you enamored with this world so that the thought of Christ coming is like, duh! Don't interrupt my... By faith, we believe that our life is hidden with Christ in God. I want to end with a story and a poem. This is a story of C.T. Studd. He was a stud. C.T. Studd lived uh, in the late 1800s in England. His father was a wealthy man. C.T. Studd was a cricket player, a famous cricket player in England. He was part of the national team. Back then, there were no professional sports. It was all amateur, unpaid, but uh, people took it just as seriously, and people got you know, very famous. He was famous in England as a cricket player. He went to Cambridge University, but God got a hold of his heart. He became a Christian, and he, he became a missionary to China, one of the Cambridge Seven. God got a hold of the hearts of seven college students at Cambridge University, and they together went off to um, China as missionaries. His father died, left him a small fortune, 29,000 pounds, which in 1880 was an enormous sum of money. He gave it all away. He ended up dying in the Congo. He wrote a poem. Many of you have heard this line. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You can just imagine C.T. Studd and the decisions that he's made in life. And let me read you the, the entire poem. Just listen. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, 
gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ to last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That was the attitude of the Thessalonian Christians. And that's why they were exemplary. May that be our attitude. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm the truth that you right now are seated on the right hand of the Father, that you will return someday to set all things right. We believe that when you return, our true life will arrive. Our best life will arrive. And, and out of faith we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Lord, today we celebrate hope. And the fact is we all, all we Christians are filled with an inexplicable hope because we know that our best life is in front of us. We know that we only have good things to come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.